morning, everyone. Uh, you should be open to Exodus chapter 20 as we continue our series in the Ten Commandments. Uh, you know, I, I spent a little bit of time in our nursery before I came in here and thinking about just seeing the little kids there. And it made me think about one of the first duties that parents have is naming their children, isn't it? Uh, for some of you, you're going to have to think back years ago for that. Uh, for some of you, that was just very recently. And for others of you, that's just right around the corner. Uh, and so when you think about, I actually have the responsibility of naming this child, uh, you, you kind of start thinking about all kinds of names. Uh, what family names should we use? Uh, what are names that I like? What are names that I don't like? What are some names that other kids can easily tease? Because you don't want to give your kid a name that they can easily tease. So you think about those kind of names. You think about popular names, common names, unique names. You just basically have just a ton of lists of names. Now, for the most part, it's not a problem. You, you pick something and you run with it. But apparently in New Zealand, it's a little bit challenging. The government of New Zealand actually had to create an official list of banned names. Yes, they actually had to make a law that you cannot name your child Lucifer, right? So six couples, no, excuse me, three couples apparently wanted to name their son. I'm assuming it's a son. I guess it could have been a daughter too. They wanted to name them Lucifer. One couple wanted to name their child Messiah, and another couple want to name their child Christ. But here's the shocker. These aren't even the weirdest names. Just ask the poor girl who was named Tallulah Does the Hula from Hawaii. Yes, in New Zealand, a judge had to slam and said, no, you are not naming your daughter Tallulah Does the Hula from Hawaii. And I guess they got the inspiration because another couple had named their twins Fish and Chips. Yep. Not to be outdone by another couple that had a set of twins named Benson and Hedges. Then there was a child named Fruit Salad, a child named uh, Number 16 Bus Shelter, another child named Yeah Detroit, all real names that the government had to say ain't going to happen. <laughs> Sooner or later, parents, or in this case, authorities who have no better, name these kids. My point simply is, when it comes to our names, we don't get to choose. We don't choose our names. Our names are chosen for us. How about you? But I remember the first day I held each of my kids, and I called them by name. Naming your child is the first real act of authority that a parent takes in the life of their child. Bestowing that name is an act of authority. Now, here's a remarkable thing. Nobody has named God. Nobody gives God His name. Now, there are some people that have names for God, and they're, just, they're, they're usually false names, and, and the Bible oftentimes decries those, but when it comes to His true name, nobody has named God. He names Himself. In other words, we don't tell God who He is. God tells us who He is. And in our study of the Ten Commandments, the third commandment, God is making it very clear. He is commanding that humanity take His name seriously. Now, if you have a Bible in front of you, it's probably maybe one of our pew Bibles or uh, an ESV. They render it this way. They translate the Hebrew, don't take the name in vain. If you have an NIV or a New Living Translation, it translates as, as don't misuse the name. Literally, in the Hebrew, you could translate this phrase, don't lift up the name to nothingness or emptiness. 
Now today, names are kind of more of a novelty as we've seen in at least New Zealand, but historically, names meant something significant. They had a a kind of weight to them. They signified a whole lot more. So to better understand the third commandment, we we need to ask a few questions. So what's in a name? What's the big deal about it? What's so important about a name? And secondly, because in the third commandment, God says he will not hold guiltless the one who violates his name. So we need to know how do we misuse the name of God? And finally, because our series is based on the New Testament teaching that the law of God is fulfilled in the life of Christ, we have to see how Jesus is the name above all names. So what's in a name? How do we misuse the name of God and how Jesus is the name above all names? Now, you should be in Exodus chapter 20. That's where we find the Ten Commandments, particularly verse 7 is the commandment we're thinking about this morning. But Exodus 20 assumes prior information, assumes another passage in the book of Exodus, and that's Exodus chapter 3 when God reveals His name to Moses, when, when God is calling Moses to His task to lead the nation of Israel out of their bondage from Egypt in becoming the people of God. Now, in the polytheistic cultures, uh, they wanted to know the name of the God, particularly if it's being claimed that this is the one true God, because in those ancient worlds there were many gods, and so how, how arrogant, how bold to claim to be the God, so they would want to know what is this God's name. And so in Exodus chapter 3, we have Moses speaking the Lord to the Lord and asking, anticipating that question and asking it of God. So here we have in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, some people believe, they, they interpret this passage here, it's, it's kind of as if God is just blowing Moses off. Come on, this is, don't get confused with the details. I am God after all, just do what I tell you, never mind the, the little details. That's clearly not what's taking place here. Nothing can be further from the truth. God is revealing Himself to Moses to be revealed to Israel and Egypt and all the people, something very profound about Himself. See, the problem I find with with passages that we can be so familiar with is that we are often so familiar with them that we are no longer blown away by them. Imagine with me, if you will, will, that that God, a little bit of a different scenario, God says to Moses, okay, you've got an invitation and it's a plus one. You can invite any one of your friends to come up here on Mount Sinai to meet with me. And Moses says, Rick, I want you to come with me to Mount Sinai. So I said, sure, absolutely. So we get to go on Mount Sinai and Moses provides the introduction. He says, God, this is Rick. Rick, this is God. Now, knowing that God is not his name, that's his title, I say to Moses, well, I know what he is, he's God, but who is he? What's his name? And Moses says, oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, Well, this is, is. And I go, his his name is, is? Yeah, the, the, the third singular pronoun of the first singular, which is am, so when he's referring to himself, he is, he says, I am, but when we're referring to him, he is, because that's his name. 
Let me get this straight, Moses. God's name is, for you English people, is the, the to be verb is, you know, am, is, are, being, that kind of a thing. So his name is the verb is. Yeah. What kind of name is that? Now, if I can pull from last week a similar scenario here, we have again the Hebrew kids hanging out with his Egyptian friend kid and the Canaanite, and the, I was going to say Canadian, but I guess they're in there too. So you got the Egyptian, the Canadian, the Amorite, and the Hebrew. And they've all thrown down their deity cards. And you remember the Hebrew kid has nothing on his card and they're kind of making fun of him. And now they're talking about the names of their gods. So the Egyptian kid says, Ra, the Egyptian god of the sun. Now that's the name. Not to be outdone, the Canadian or the Canaanite says, Ishkur, the Sumerian sun god. Now that's the name. Not to be outdone, the Amorite says, uh, Tammuz, the Assyrian warrior god. That's the name. And the Hebrew kid says, Is the Hebrew God from the verbal form to be. You imagine all his friends looking at him and going, what's the deal with you Hebrews? You're just so weird. Now keep in mind the context. Commandment number two, you can't make an image to capture me. Commandment number three, you don't have the words that fathom me. Humanity, you can apprehend me, but you can never comprehend me. I am beyond your descriptions. Even my name, you cannot even have a category for that. So this is not very different. This is in keeping in who he is. But names mean something. After all, God has many other names in the Bible. If you're in a community group, that's going to be part of your questions. They identify the name's holder, and that is exactly what is happening here in Exodus 3.14 when God reveals His name as, uh, as am or is. It's as good as a name we can imagine. So the question we have to ask is, so, so what is, when God takes the, this verb, which by the way, names are nouns, God takes a verb as a name, what does He mean by that? You see, Moses, he's not some dumb Bedouin, right? We, we cannot think that the, these pre-moderns were just dumb. Pharaoh was nobody's fool. If anything, we, we post-moderns are the ones that are a bit dense at this. We know they knew exactly what God was doing because when you look at the text, there's no question from Moses. He doesn't do the little comical interaction I just did. He knows exactly what is happening when God says, I am that I am. Tell him I am sent you. And, and Pharaoh is well aware of what that means as well. To pull from your days in college, if you remember having a philosophy class, when God says, I am, that is an expression of ontology, ultimate ontology. God is saying, I am pure existence. Is is the only way to describe what I am. I am pure existence, pure being, always was, always am, always will be. The infinite past, the truest present, the eternal future, all wrapped in one. That's what I am. That is my name. It is a statement of ultimate being. When he says, I am, it is a statement of ultimate being. It is a statement of ultimate reality. It is sovereignty, supremacy, and truth all wrapped up in this expression, which we just see as the verb to be. There's no other way to express the, the aseity that is God. The aseity means that he has self-existence. Nothing in this world, nothing that we can conceive of has aseity which means to say self-existence. Not even the sun, the most powerful force we know, has self-existence. It too will burn out. 
God is the only being that says, I am is. I is. Now, that's horrible English, but that's wonderful theology. His name is much more than a mere label. It is His identity, and it is His character. The supreme name of Yahweh is much more than just an easy way to address God. It expresses His entire character and reputation. And His name is used this way through other portions of the Scripture. So, so King David in the Psalms, Psalm 8-1, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, David was not simply praising God for his name, but for being the God who made everything for his glory. After all, that's the whole point of the Exodus. That was the whole point of the Exodus. God was saving a people for His own glory, or like the psalmist would say, specifically referring to when God split the Red Sea in Psalm 106.8. He writes this, yet He saved them for His name's sake that He might make known His mighty power. Psalm 111.9, he sent redemption, speaking of this Exodus period, to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. God's name refers to all that he is and all that he does. That's no little thing. That, that is, that, that's not peanuts here. This is why God says, do not take my name in vain, because when you, you, when you profane it, you trivialize all that I am, my character, my reputation. When you trivialize my name, you trivialize me. The periodical magazine called Chronicles, a magazine of American culture, the author Gary North, in writing about the third commandment, frames it in such a unique way to help modern Americans understand the, the elasticity, the application, and the sovereignty, and the severity of God's name by comparing it to the use of trademarks. It's brilliant. Let me read it. For a modern American, to begin to understand the third commandment is to treat God's name as a trademark property in order to gain widespread trademark property, period, in order to gain widespread distribution for his copyrighted repair manual, the Bible, and also to capture greater market share for his authorized franchise, the church, God has graciously licensed the use of his name to anyone who will use it according to his written instructions. It needs to be understood, however, that God's name has not been released into the public domain. God retains legal control over His name and threatens serious penalties against the unauthorized misuse of this supremely valuable property. All trademark violations will be prosecuted to the full limits of the law. The prosecutor, judge, and jury, and enforcer is God. So what's in a name? What's in a name is His entire character and reputation. That's why it's a big deal. That's why he says, I will not hold guiltless anyone who profanes or takes my name in vain. So this makes our second question truly important then. 
then how do we misuse God's name? Because if he's not going to hold us guiltless, let's find out how do we misuse it. And let me briefly just talk about three ways. Let me illustrate three ways we misuse the name of God today. And they can be categorized in in categories of ignorance, arrogance, and just plain inattentiveness. The first one is the one that most people think about when they think about violating the third command. And you've all heard it, whether the name of God is used kind of like a swear word or an exclamation point, right? I'm not going to illustrate to you because you've heard that. And and oftentimes you see this a lot of times outside the Christian community, outside the church, because people simply are ignorant to what they are doing. And so because they hear so much, they continue to repeat it, and they use the name of God, which, by the way, do you recognize how hallowed His name is that when it comes to the the, the Ten Commandments, God is talking first person in commandment one and two, but when God refers to His name, He doesn't say, it's my name. What does He say? The name. He's even referring to his own name in the third person because that's how sacred it is. And yet, people use it as a way to just accentuate a sentence or a curse. So that's the first way, and that's the most common way people think about violating this commandment. But there's a good chance that most of you here are probably not in danger of that. So let's move on to the second way we might do it. And this happens a lot of times in the church, and it stems from arrogance, And it's using God's name to advance your own personal agenda. Using God's name, not for His purposes, but for your own personal agenda. One of the most blatant examples of this is when I was in Bible college, I I went to a Pentecostal charismatic school, and we were tended to be the kinds of people that threw the name of God a little bit more loosely than we should have. And there wouldn't be a month that would go by that either some man would tell some young lady sometimes a young lady telling a young man that God told me we're supposed to get married. It happened all, at least once a month. I always found it weird that God never told the other person that they were supposed to get married too. You know, it's like if God told you you should get married to her, why doesn't he do the same here? And so I would hear this kind of thing, or God told me that I need to do X, Y, and Z. Now, believe it or not, I hear this quite a lot, even to this day, that God, people will say, God told me to do this. What I find odd, though, friends, is that God never seems to tell these people to do something that they would rather avoid. In other words, every time someone tells me that God told them to do something, it usually has a lot of self-interest behind it, and they benefit from this command somehow, even if it's contrary to Scripture. In other words, the Lord never seems to tell them that they should suffer greatly for His name or humble themselves and become the servant of all. I haven't heard that one yet. The Lord never seems to tell them to abandon all earthly possessions, or the Lord never seems to tell them that they should live a life of celibacy and singleness so that they may serve the Lord and the local church without restraint. The Lord always seems to tell them something that eventually will seek to benefit them greatly. Years ago, I had a friend who told me that God told him he was going to be a missionary. So I said, great, where did God tell you you were going to go? The Caribbean. I said, God didn't tell you to be a missionary to the Caribbean. I said, if God was actually going to speak to you and tell you something to be a missionary, it'd probably be to like Iran or North Korea, someplace where there is no gospel witness and where there's threat of persecution. I'm pretty sure that there are other Christians enjoying the beaches in the Caribbean that God could raise up to spread the gospel. 
Now, thankfully, especially in our church, very few people ever tell me God told them directly to do something. That kind of more is a more of a, a mistake of our charismatic brothers and sisters. But we conservatives tend to make a very, very similar mistake. And it may not be with the audible word of God, it's often with the written word of God, and it goes something like this that they have a passion or desire, or sometimes they're just reading Scripture, and they feel that God is telling them to do something that usually aligns with their personal preferences, and they found one or two passages of Scripture that support and bolster their claim. And they become so certain that this is what God wants that they no longer listen to the counsel of other believers or submit to the spiritual authority of the church. They now know, they are convinced that they are right because they believe they have a word from the Lord. It doesn't matter that it's completely out of context, nor does it matter that it violates the clear teaching of the rest of Scripture. They are sure that this is God's word for them, when in fact they are really taking His name in vain because they are using His name to sanction their personal preference rather than God's purposes. You see how that happens. And so he said, this is what God wants me to do. It doesn't matter if I take it out of context. I'm not seeking the counsel of others. I'm sure this is what God wants, and it usually has something to do with what they want to do. That is taking God's name in vain. So there's the, the ignorant way of doing it. There's an arrogant way of doing it. But then there's the one that's probably most common. Happens probably every week. I'm sure in a room this size with as many people, it happened this very morning. And it's not arrogance, it's not ignorance, it's just plain inattentiveness. This is the most subtle, but probably the most common way we sin against the Lord by breaking the third commandment. Maybe it just happened for you 25 minutes ago. We proclaim His majesty, His power, His victory, His grace, and all these things with our lips but our minds and our hearts are just not engaged at all, right? Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for sesame oil and halibut would be great right now. What time does service get done, you know? Or behold our, what is that dude doing over there? Or, she wore that outfit to church? I mean, we just, we have these moments where we're singing to God. We're supposed to be dialed in. But what's going on? We're just not engaged. We're, we're, we're lights out to the things of God. You know, one way I know a brother and sister are kind of going to slid into violating the third commandment. Now, I know you're all going to get paranoid when you, and you're not going to want to pray around me, but I listen to when people pray. And a tall tale sign that they've checked out, that they're disengaged in their heart and mind to the relationship of God, is how many times they say Jesus or Father in the prayer. You ever talk to people like that? I've, I've counted, okay, I'm sorry, I just do. I counted sometimes 15 times in a prayer that wasn't even 90 seconds long. You've heard it. Jesus, we just kind of thank you for this. Jesus, you're just so awesome. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And uh, what are we praying about? I don't know, but I'm saying Jesus, so that's a prayer. Jesus, amen. That's a violation of the third commandment. What's the connecting tissue? That in each case, there is a disassociation from the name of God to His character and His identity, and His glory. There's a trivialization of who we are approaching, and we handle it so flippantly, as if there was no consequence for being in the presence of a holy being. 
And if we know anything from our study of Scripture, whenever we read about God's glory, which is what He associates with His name, whenever you read the word glory in the Bible, that is theological shorthand for what makes everything in the universe go right. God's glory, let me say it again, is biblical shorthand for everything that makes the universe go right, which is why God will not abide His glory to be diminished one bit. See the connection here in Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Because of this, God later says in Isaiah 45, 23, to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. In the New Testament, Paul picks up this very theme in Romans 14, 11. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And then there's the, pen, the penny drops in Philippians chapter 2 when Paul writes, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is deliberately linking what the prophet Isaiah said from the lips of Yahweh, from the lips of I am himself about not sharing his glory or his name, and Paul directly links it to Jesus Christ. Why does Paul do that? Because notice the word therefore. Therefore, Bible study tip, whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, what you should you be asking? What is it there for, right? Paul is concluding an argument and, and making a summation here based on an argument he made earlier, which in our passage is Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where Paul is recounting the work of Christ to redeem humanity from the bondage of sin. So, let's connect the dots. Just as God brought the Israelites out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt and revealed His name to His people, Jesus brought God's people out of their bondage and slavery to sin. The salvation that Christ won for all God's people is the greater salvation that the exodus from Egypt merely pointed forward to. And likewise, the name of Christ that is revealed at His resurrection is greater than the name of God that was revealed at Sinai. In other words, to truly obey the third commandment, it's not good enough just not to ignorantly use His name or arrogantly use His name or inattentively. To truly obey the third commandment means we must worship Jesus Christ because His is the name that has been above all names. Friends, the name of God as revealed in the Old Testament, this supreme, sovereign, majestic name, this, this almost abstract, surreal name, am, is, this to-be verb, because of Christ in the New Testament becomes this personal, intimate, affectionate name. Remember, Jesus taught His disciples how to pray. He says, when you pray, you say, Father. And you say, well, that, that's not a name, that's a title. <laughs> but as every father knows, Father is both a title and a name, not to everyone, but to those unique individuals who are your children. It is a name. And just as the title, the name Father does not apply to everyone, but those who are uniquely His because of the work of Jesus Christ, 
According to Ephesians 1 and Galatians 4, if you have been adopted because you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, you are now sons and daughters of God. And we see that the name of God for us is not some vague, abstract name that that gets to ontology and philosophical wonders. It's a name Father, Dad. To honor the name of God means to honor the name of Jesus Christ. We fulfill the third commandment, not so much because of what we say or don't say, but because of who we worship. And we fulfill it by worshiping Christ Himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we can call You Father, that You are no longer this majestic, sovereign, ominous being transcendent from all of us, but You have come close to us in Christ, and we call You Dad. Lord, I pray that there is no one in this room that will leave without knowing that they can have this relationship with You because of what Christ has done that the massive exodus that has just been phenomenal was only pointing forward to the massive exodus that Christ allowed in leading us out of the bondage of sin into glorious adoption in you. We'll thank you for these things in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.